0: Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This audio program has been carefully packed to the legal limit with a weekly allowance of non-governmentally approved deep thoughts per square minute of podcast.
1: Welcome to the latest iteration of the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. We're beginning a new season with this episode reflecting ongoing changes to the Silent Assembly. Every major change in life is like a new season, and I imagine that this will likely be an ongoing process. So the message here is, don't get too attached to anything about the Silent Assembly. Judah is unable to commit to a regular recording schedule as a host, and so it's going to be me, your humble servant Noah, taking over hosting duties for the foreseeable future. I hope Judah will appear from time to time as a guest as we go along. And the program will be featuring other interesting voices as guests. So if you know someone you'd like to hear on the program, or if you yourself would like to submit yourself for scrutiny as a guest, I hope that you will send an email to silentassembly at protonmail.com, and I'll consider all requests. I have a few people lined up, and I think you'll find it quite interesting. But in addition to doing guest interviews, I will be exploring in greater depth some of the topics Judah and I have discussed in earlier episodes. And this episode is one such instance. In a previous episode, we discussed the Mahabharata, which I'm mispronouncing, the ancient Hindu epic dating from approximately 400 A.D., Some 600 years prior to that, appears the Sanskrit text, the Yoga Sutras, which is referred to now as the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, considered to be one of the most important texts in the Hindu tradition and the foundation of classical yoga. Now here the term yoga does not refer to the physical exercises that we now associate with all the various annoying things that we associate with yoga, although it's a great practice That's not what this word means in this case. At that time, and really still today, yoga is a comprehensive discipline that focuses on the union with divine consciousness, and the physical exercises would just be one small component, really kind of a minor aspect of what the yoga practice was about. The word yoga in Sanskrit means union in English. And what we're talking about here is union with divine consciousness, and that's the focus of this text. We're incredibly fortunate to have access to these ancient formulations of incredibly profound spiritual insight. Uh, If you're interested in following along and getting more familiarized with the material, these texts are easily found online. There are two translations that I recommend. One is by Bon Giovanni and the other by Charles Johnson. They're quite different. So if you don't happen to understand ancient Sanskrit, it's worth considering them both. And that's exactly what I do in the following discussion. I recorded this ad lib for the first half of the first part of the Yoga Sutras. I didn't get that far. And I've inserted some commentary using this crappy microphone at certain points along the way where I might've done a better job. So I hope you find this worth your time. Enjoy. This is an extremely interesting text. I'm just going to go through the first section. I have two translations and my own interpolation. And we'll kind of cover it point by point. This is really a wonderful, concise expression of some of the ancient Hindu thought. It's really in stark contrast to the Mahabharata due to its brevity. Reminds me a lot more of many of the Taoist texts, some of which I find really interesting. So it really elegantly, you'll see, each statement is about as amazing as it could be. And of course it was originally written in Sanskrit. So the difference in the translations is pretty interesting. Here we go, part one of the Yoga Sutras in Patanjali, the threads of union is one way that it's translated. It comes in a number of different parts, so this is the first part, and it's translated uh, by Bon Giovanni as On Contemplations, but Charles Johnson says, Book of Spiritual Consciousness. Here we go. Now, instruction in union. That's uh, Bon Giovanni. And Charles Johnson says, Om, here follows instruction in union. Union is restraining the thought streams natural to the mind. Union, spiritual consciousness, is gained through the control of the versatile psychic nature. So psychic, the psyche, is the individuated sense of being, the thinking monkey mind. And so spiritual consciousness is gained through control of this monkey mind. Note that the word psychic here has nothing whatsoever to do with a psychic, someone who you go, who's going to tell you about your future, your past, your past lives, the, you know, all that mumbo jumbo You know, some people say they're real. So far, I have my doubts. But, okay, it's not that psychic. The versatile psychic nature is the experience uh, that we're all having in our own consciousness of our individuated being. So the, the third statement here is, then the seer dwells in his own nature. That's the Bon Giovanni translation. Charles Johnson says, then the seer comes to consciousness in his proper nature. So through this process of controlling the individual psychic activity, the stuff going on in the head, one is able to dwell within the nature of the seer, let's say. Otherwise, if we don't do that, he is of the same form as the thought streams. So you could say you are what you think, something like that. Charles Johnson says, Uh, heretofore the seer has been enmeshed in the activities of the psychic nature so prior to gaining control over the individuated uh, ego mental activity all the various things that we're getting involved in in our heads prior to getting control over that we are enmeshed in it we're basically trapped by these thoughts and the convictions that we have about these thoughts so then uh, Bon Giovanni says the thought streams are fivefold, painful and not painful. Charles Johnson says the psychic activities are five. They are either subject or not subject to the five hindrances. So what's being said here is that there are five different types of thought streams, basic categories, and that they're either pleasant or unpleasant. We're going to talk about these five types of Domains of thought is maybe a better way of saying it. A thought object would be a specific instance, and there are certain basic categories, five basic categories here. So we have right knowledge, wrong knowledge, fancy sleep and memory. That's how Bon Giovanni maps it out. Charles Johnson says these activities are, one, sound intellection, two, unsound intellection, three, predication, four, sleep, and five, memory. So, right knowledge or sound intellection, we could think of that as being accurate perceptions, accurate thoughts about those perceptions, where there's a relationship between the thinking and an actual phenomena that's occurring and that it's a sound relationship. Wrong knowledge, or unsound intellection, is incorrect perception, and incorrect interpretation of perception. Actually, these are spelled out in the next few statements, so let's just go through the next few statements here. It says, Right knowledge is inference, tradition, and genuine cognition. The elements of sound intellection are, one, direct observation, two, inductive reasoning, Three, trustworthy testimony. So the question, of course, comes in, what, how do we know what's trustworthy testimony? But, of course, sometimes we have to accept someone's point of view as having authority in one way or another, and that is a valid way of going about doing things. If you place trust in a, trustful, a trustworthy person, then you're getting information from a decent source. So then you have uh, the difference between the translation between bon Giovanni and Charles Johnson. You have tradition mentioned in bon Giovanni. And you could say that the idea that right knowledge is associated with tradition has to do with if something has lasted the test of time there's something correct about it moving along now wrong knowledge is considered to be false illusory erroneous beliefs or notions charles johnson says unsound intellection is false understanding not resting on a perception of the true nature of things fair enough fancy bon Giovanni is following after word knowledge empty of substance Charles Johnson uses the word predication. Predication is carry on through words or thoughts, not resting on an object perceived. So it's basically um, talking to yourself. Might be one way of thinking of it. Um, it's an operation that carries on just by virtue of the language without any particular phenomena being referred to. So, fanciful. Then we have sleep as the next form of thought streams. Um, So, there's basic categories. Deep sleep is the modification of the mind which has for its substratum nothingness. I love that statement. Um, That's... Bon Giovanni, Charles Johnson says sleep is the psychic condition which rests on mind states, all material things being absent. It's interesting to consider the possibility that nothingness is the origin of what we experience during sleep. But it seems like there are things which creep into our sleep from our senses. You know, if there's a loud noise at night, someone might think that uh, something happens in their dream. So I don't know that it's fully accurate to say that it's nothingness, even though I love that statement. Sleep is certainly a different form of experience within our cognitive realm. And it's. I think that maybe Charles Johnson's a little better here. He says, all material things being absent... Although, you know, a lightning strike, you know, there could be something like you're feeling on when you're uh, sleeping, I remember feeling a texture when I was sick once, and it took on this kind of life in my dreams. It was a texture of the blanket, texture of the, of the uh, mattress. And it was greatly exaggerated in the, in the dream state. But at any rate, Let's not get too caught up on that. So now we're going to go to memory as a different category of mind states. Memory is not allowing mental impressions to escape. Another fascinating statement. Charles Johnson translates it, Memory is holding to mind images of things perceived without modifying them. It's interesting to consider the difference between those two translations. It gives you a sense of the difficulty in translating. I imagine that the Sanskrit could really be interpreted in many different ways into English. And so uh, once I get to a certain point here, I'm going to go through the whole thing again with the way that I've been interpreting it. So now we have our five basic categories of thought streams, which we would want to control in order to relieve ourselves of the burden of the psychic nature. So it's uh, right knowledge, wrong knowledge, fancy or predication, sleep and memory. I would say dreams instead of sleep. Because dreams are the things that we're experiencing. Sleep is more of a whole body type of activity. These thought streams are controlled by practice and non-attachment. Charles Johnson says, the control of these psychic activities comes through the right use of the will and through ceasing from self-indulgence. Bon Giovanni, the next section, practice is the effort to secure steadiness. Charles Johnson, the right use of the will is the steady effort to stand in spiritual being. Bon Giovanni, this practice becomes well-grounded when continued with reverent devotion and without interruption over a long period of time. Charles Johnson, this becomes a firm resting place when followed long, persistently, and with earnestness. Bon Giovanni, desirelessness towards the seen and the unseen gives the consciousness of mastery. Charles Johnson, Ceasing from self indulgence is conscious mastery over the thirst for sensuous pleasure, here or hereafter. Bon Giovanni, this is signified by an indifference to the three attributes due to knowledge of the indweller. Charles Johnson, the consummation of this freedom from thirst for any mode of psychical activity through the establishment of the spiritual man. So. I'm going to go back to the beginning now and um and read what I've derived. So I'm saying that this part, this first section of the Yoga Sutras that is, is basically about distinctions between ordinary materially bound mind and extraordinary spiritually freed mind. The first statement the spiritual mind concentrates on union with the cosmos. That's what Om signifies. Those of you who listened to uh, some of the previous episodes may remember when Judah and I were discussing the word Om, how it has a tripartite um, meaning, a three in one. That's related to Yorhei Vovhei, the uh, past, present, future. It's kind of a, a holy trinity concept. That which was that which is that which will be as being the fundamental sound if you like that's the the universal cosmic tone that's om so all of that is wrapped up in this initial yogic union message union of all time bringing everything to a single point that's what we're thinking about in this case We're turning the mind towards a, you know, the basics of yoga has to do with union. The physical practice of yoga is traditionally just a vehicle for the establishment of a unified consciousness with the cosmos. So the first statement is. The spiritual mind concentrates on union with the cosmos, and then union is achieved through restraint of the thought activities natural to the materially bound mind, thus allowing consciousness to reveal its unadulterated nature. Ordinarily, the mind is occupied with thought occurrences. There are five categories of thought occurrences, some of them enjoyable and some of them painful. The thought occurrences are 1. Correct thinking. 2. Incorrect thinking. Three, fanciful predication, four, dreams, and five, memory. Correct thinking consists of accurate observation, true testimony, and inference. Incorrect thinking consists of inaccurate observation, false testimony, and erroneous concepts. Fanciful predication is imaginative thought activity without any concern for reality. Dreams are modifications of mind states detached from material existence. Memory is holding to mind images of sense impressions without modifying them. So there we have the five different categories of thought activities, thought occurrences. And now we can talk about how do we control them. Thought occurrences are controlled by practicing restraint in involvement with them. So just simply... Going the opposite way is kind of the way the Taoists think of it. They call it reversal. When a thought object arises, you contemplate the opposite. That's actually the technique that's described here. I think of that as being the primary point, at least of this first section. The best use of the will is to practice restraint steadily. This is an interest. It couldn't be more opposite from what we think in our ordinary lives. What's the best use of the mind? Well, to do what you need to do, to get everything done, to strategize about your life, to analyze a situation and make decisions and come up with plans. So this is saying the best use of the will is to practice restraint steadily, is to stop all that stuff. Imagine what it would be like to actually live without thinking of any of these things. I, I have a hard time imagining really living life. It seems to me that it would be very difficult. But I wonder, these were obviously incredibly perceptive, wise people. Uh, whoever Patanjali was, and the culture from whence he came, they must have understood something really profound. Now, So what would actually occur? If we truly restrained our minds as we're being asked to do here. I don't know. I am definitely tempted to find out. I don't know that I could ever get myself to do it. I can do these types of practices now for a little while. And I'm aware of it as I'm doing what I'm doing through the day. But basically I'm trying to get stuff done. Making plans. Analyzing the situation. Doing the whole deal making podcasts, whatever it is, if I was going to devote my will entirely to restraining the mind, what would happen? Would I, would I just become completely irrelevant and perish? It seems like that's probably the most likely outcome. I'd love to know if there's anyone out there who has a thought on that. At any rate, let's continue, shall we? So, the best use of the will is to practice restraint steadily. Steadiness is secured with diligent perseverance over a long period of time. Okay. Mastering restraint requires steadiness in the face of all phenomena, whether it be the thirst for sensory satisfaction or the desire for imagined things, whether it be here and now or hereafter and later. So, that's where we left off before with the other translations. And I'm not going to try to, having introduced the original text translations and the one that I'm working on, I'm going to work my way through the rest of this part, if I can. Doing them all together. Although it appears that I never actually finished the whole part. So let's see how far we get. So. That last one. Desireless towards the seen and unseen gives the consciousness of mastery. So when you've done this over a very long period of time. Apparently what happens is you have. An attitude of complete detachment. Towards both the seen and the unseen, the real and the imagined. This is signified by an indifference to the three attributes due to knowledge of the indweller. So the three attributes is reference to the gunas, I believe. Charles Johnson says, The consummation of this is freedom from thirst for any mode of psychical activity. The mode, the the, the material modes of nature is how the gunas are often translated. And this establishes the, quote, spiritual man is how Charles Johnson says it. My translation, my interpolation here is mastery is freedom from the material mode of being, thereby establishing the spiritual mode of being. And very quickly, the material mode of being, the gunas, there are three of them. You have rajas, tamas, and sattva. Rajas are desire. And you could think of the material mode of being is where you're You're fixated on the apparent phenomena happening. So the events occurring in your circumstances. Rajas has to do with desire. It's related to fire. It's a burning. In the trigram system, it would be be the fire trigram. Clinging fire is what they call it. I think it also is aversion. So it's basically the attractive-aversive principle. And because we're talking about a spiritual way of looking at things, these are considered things which lead you away from the truth. So the material mode of being is something that sends things off the rails from a spiritual point of view, you could say. It's that inversion between material and spirit that Jude and I have discussed many times. The second one is called tamas which is basically ignorance. So just simply not knowing. It would kind of fall into the wrong knowledge, unsound intellection, what did I call it? incorrect thinking type of thing. Just not having the information about what's going on, not understanding, not able to perceive state of ignorance. It's another way that we lose our way. And the third is called satwa, the most interesting of the three because it's associated with the impulse towards enlightenment. So these people were so deep that they understood that the enlightenment industry is another path towards darkness. And if ever there was a civilization qualified to weigh in on what the spiritual industry is really all about. It would be the one that's now in India. It's brilliant. I mean, all you got to do is take a look at, at what's happening in the spiritual community and you can see that that's obviously true. So that's the three gunas that are being referenced here. Cognitive meditation, this is the technique, is accompanied by reasoning, discrimination, bliss, and the sense of I am. That's Banjivani. Charles Johnson says, meditation with an object follows these stages. One, exterior examining. Two, interior judicial action. Three, joy. Four, realization of individual being. And then I extract from that. Suspending thought requires constant examination and judiciousness resulting in a feeling of bliss and presence in being. Okay. There is another meditation which is attained by practice of alert mental suspension until only subtle impressions remain. That's Bon Giovanni. Charles Johnson says, After the exercise of the will has still the psychic activities, meditation rests only on the fruit of former meditations. Those, to me, seem to be completely unrelated translations. It's difficult to know which of those two points to really focus on. What I got was when all thought has been suspended so that only subtle fluctuations remain, meditation rests on the fruit of each successive stage. But the thing that's interesting about the Giovanni translation is that it suggests two different cognitive meditations, one of which has to do with meditating on an object, and the other one has to do with suspending any kind of object formation. However, Charles Johnson suggests that these are not two mutually exclusive meditation practices, that the second one actually follows from the first one. He says, after the exercise of the will has stilled the psychic activity, so the will has been focused on an object with the interior judicial action of releasing association with that object, you then experience joy, freeing yourself from preconceptions about the definitive nature of that object. And that's where the sense of the, the seer within rises up. But then he adds this thing about meditation rests only on the fruit of former meditations. Which gives you this sense of progression that's kind of neat, but I don't see how that relates to what Bon Giovanni's talking about. But I think both of them are really interesting points, so I tried to combine them Taking another look at it now, I'm noticing that it looks like the the order of the statement is reversed in each of these translations, so in Bongioovanni, you have the practice of alert mental suspension until only subtle impressions remain the second half whereas you have the exercise of the will has stilled the psychic activities in the first half of the Charles Johnson. And so then you could compare Johnson's meditation rests only on the fruit of former meditations with the earlier part of Bon Giovanni where he says there is another meditation. You have that sense of, of su- succession where he says there is another meditation. My sense is that Bon Giovanni missed the boat on this one. I think actually Charles Johnson is probably a little closer in the sense of there being an ongoing progression, not an alternative technique. The next thing that Bon Giovanni says is for those beings who are formless and for those beings who are merged in unitive consciousness, the world is the cause. I have trouble with this one. Charles Johnson says, subjective consciousness arising from a natural cause is possessed by those who have laid aside their bodies and been absorbed into subjective nature. I'm going to read those both again and see if you can get any sense that this would be a translation of the same section of text originally in Sanskrit. First one is, for those beings who are formless and for those beings who are merged in unitive consciousness, the world is the cause. Subjective consciousness arising from a natural cause is possessed by those who have laid aside their bodies and been absorbed into subjective nature. I got to admit, I don't know how to reconcile those two. What did I do? I said, union is the form of consciousness that arises when one lays aside the body's material attachments and allows the thoughts to cease. I don't know. I think I just kind of went back to the main subject because I couldn't figure out what to do with those other two. The only real way to deal with this would be to learn Sanskrit. So, I guess if... uh, if I ever have a lot of time on my hands, that's what I'll try to do. Until then, I'm just going to hack through some more of this and see where we go. There's another way of looking at this passage that's related to the previous one, where if you look at the, the beginning and the ending as being reversed. So in this case, you have uh, the world is the cause as the last part of the uh, Bon Giovanni And in the beginning of Charles Johnson, he says, subjective consciousness arising from a natural cause. So we say natural cause and the world is the cause are the related passages here. I still find it pretty difficult to really penetrate this one. So Bongiovanni then says, for others, right? So in his previous statement, he said, for those beings who are formless and for those beings who are merged in unitive consciousness, the world is the cause. But for others, the ones who are not formless, and who are not merged in unit of consciousness. Clarity is preceded by faith, energy, memory, and equal-minded contemplation. Charles Johnson says, For the others, there is spiritual consciousness led up to by 1. Faith 2. Valor 3. Right-mindedness or right-mindfulness 4. One-pointedness 5. Perception Again, we have two quite different Translations, what did I end up deriving from it? I said, alternatively, clarity can be achieved by faith, courage, right mindfulness, focus, and equal-minded contemplation. It seems like these last two sections of the Yoga Sutras, I guess you could say the last two sutras, are describing two different forms of consciousness ones which have achieved the discipline described in the earlier sutras, where the best use of the will is to practice restraint steadily. And if that restraint is practiced steadily, then the form of consciousness is unitive. There's no distinction being made. So that would be for those beings who are formless and for those beings who are merged in unitive consciousness. Just kind of the same thing. But then there's the rest of us, which as far as I can tell is most of us. I really, really would love to know how many people have been able to practice this to the point where that's the world that they're living in, where they can experience that unitive, formless, spiritual consciousness at all times. It's hard to imagine that that would be possible even under ideal circumstances. And nowadays, it seems almost impossible to imagine. Although, little glimpses during meditation can be achieved. But then we got to get back to life, right? So, for others, for all of us, I'll say, because I don't imagine that anyone who would be listening to this podcast would be suspended in mental restraint. If you are, you're going to have to convince me. It would be, take a lot to convince me that that's where you're at. So, it's for the rest of us that this second statement is being, is being uh, made. Clarity is preceded by faith, energy, memory, and equal-minded contemplation. Charles Johnson. Spiritual consciousness is led up to by one faith. They agree about faith. Like two, valor. So, valor and energy are somehow related. Right mindfulness, which is hearkening back to the five categories of thought streams. One-pointedness and perception. So really the only word that's common between these two translations is faith. Bon Giovanni says, faith, energy, memory, equal-minded contemplation. Charles Johnson says, faith, valor, right mindfulness, one-pointedness, and perception. It would be fascinating to know what the what the actual Sanskrit was. So I said, clarity can be achieved by faith, courage, right mindfulness, focus, and equal-minded contemplation. The point being, of course, that there are a variety of techniques for those of us whose minds are still involved in... The, uh, in the gunas in the material modes of nature there are a variety of ways that we can have some taste of spiritual consciousness I think that's the basic point being made here so to continue along here we go bon equal minded contemplation is nearest to those whose desire is most ardent Charles Johnson says spiritual consciousness is nearest to those of keen intense will I derived equal-minded contemplation is nearest to those of keen, intense will. Pretty straightforward. Bon Giovanni says, There is further distinction on account of the mild, moderate, or intense means employed. Charles Johnson says, The will may be one, weak, two, of middle strength, or three, intense. I say, The will may be one, weak, two, of middling strength, or three, intense. I guess I favored Charles Johnson there. Or, by surrender to God. That's how Bon Giovanni puts it. Charles Johnson says, or spiritual consciousness may be gained by ardent service to the master. And I say, union may also be attained by devotion to God. Now, let's go for the next one first before we discuss this. It's a wonderful definition of God that I'd never heard before. I think it's incredibly beautiful. The way Bonjivani says it, God is a particular yet universal indweller, untouched by afflictions, actions, impressions, and their results. Charles Johnson says, The master is, a, is the spiritual man who is free from, one, hindrances, two, bondage to works, and three, the fruition and seed of works. So in this case, Charles Johnson is avoiding the use of the word God. He's talking about the master being a spiritual man. Which, to my mind, is a little confusing because it suggests something resembling an individual person. If the whole idea is to relieve ourselves of the sense of ego-self the psychic activity of the mind about our own particular concerns and interpretations then it makes far more sense to refer to a consciousness that is transcendent or unitive which is the whole yoga concept so i like the word god here i think it's a a beautiful way of referring to it and if you Read the Bible, as I do, and you start to think of God in these terms as a particular yet universal indweller, untouched by afflictions, actions, impressions, and their result. So particular yet universal indweller means within all of us, of course, but a particular one, meaning the one, one God, it is a particular indweller within all of us. And then when you read the Bible and you think of, and and you read the passages where God is speaking, you realize this is the indweller speaking within the person. You don't have to imagine coming on down on a cloud or something like that. It's just a really beautiful way of thinking of it. And I think it integrates perfectly with the Judeo Christian, you know, Abrahamic tradition, if you like. The way I derive that formulation is God is a particular yet universal indweller who is free from affliction and hindrance having no bondage to action, the seed of action or the fruit of action. So action of course is something that takes place within the apparent physical domain the material modes of nature are um, our attention is held because of the actions occurring within the physical drama of our lives. So God is not attached to that, is the basic idea. We're kind of meat puppets within which God exists of all of us, and I would say all living beings, and I would say also probably all entities, including molecules and atoms and particles. I've written an article on that subject And I will provide a link to it in the show notes. There's a conscious being within all things. Experiencing. Experiencing all the different points of view that there are for every entity. Everywhere. God is that source of being. Now, we are not God. God is in us. But we're not gods. And we're not God. but we're instruments of God. God is within us. And what this is saying is, here's how to recognize that. Here's how to live with that. And to free yourself from the misery of ordinary life. Because ordinary life is basically miserable. It doesn't matter how good you have it. Everyone knows. Rich people can be even more miserable than poor people. But of course, poor people can be incredibly miserable too. You know, there's a huge range of misery, but there's a fair amount of it in most people's lives. And then the bottom of that goes way, 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 way beyond what most of us can imagine. Although, if you start to really think about what's happening in places like Libya or Liberia... What has happened historically in places like Cambodia or, you know, the gulags and the concentration camps, and you name it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but just obviously there's a lot of misery. So this is a pretty good practice and some stuff that's worth thinking about because we never know exactly what we're going to have to confront in life. So when you think about someone like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whose name I can barely pronounce, how did he make it through the conditions of his life with such clarity? I don't know that he was practicing anything along these lines, but on another level it seemed like he would have to be. He would have to develop some degree of detachment from what was occurring around him. How could you feel viscerally at every moment all of these horrors And still endure. You would have to find some kind of refuge. From the experiences you're having. So... I'm being interrupted. This might be the end of this episode. We'll pick it up again soon. Hope you enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, throw us a bone by subscribing to this channel, visiting our social media pages, and hitting the various like, love, and clap buttons. We welcome all comments, criticisms, and random thoughts. Our email is silentassembly at protonmail.com, and if you want to be an angel, we have a Patreon page. look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times
1: before you pick it up and take it home.